All right, good evening. It's super great to have you all here. Uh, and I, and I, I hope uh, that this, this series that we're going to go into over the next quarter means to you what it means to me. I want to tell you what it is and what it's not. Um, we're uh, going through a series called The Rocks Cry Out. Uh, this is, we're just going to be going through locations um, that are important to Israel. And, and what I want to tell you what that's not is you're not going to get a lot of pictures of, of like, this is what this looks like today. Or, it's not going to be a whole lot of that. This is going to be a more, a lot of, uh, more about the meaning and the depth behind w- what is conveyed through some of these locations, what message is, is being delivered. And, and some of these, it's a, uh, and this one in particular is, is a difficult one because it's really complicated. There's a lot going on. So I'm going to really try to simplify what's happening here at Mount Moriah, and um, and I hope this message means to you tonight what it meant to me today. Um, I it, I cannot tell you how much just I got excited about this message, and I hope I'm able to deliver that effectively. Uh, but let's go ahead and, and open with a prayer, and we'll get into the word. Uh, my God, I just want to ask your blessing over the uh, over uh, this body. Um, uh, we just want to we just want to sit at the feet of your word, and I, I pray God that you would speak to us. Um, you set up memorials in the land all over Israel to remind your people over and over again about events, uh, Ebenezer's places you had brought them, and I pray God that you do the same in our lives, that you won't cause us to become nearsighted and blind, and to forget what you've done for us, and to forget who we are and what we're called to. Um, Thank you for uh, your word this evening. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So um, I want to begin uh, this journey um, with Mount Moriah. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go to Genesis 22.2. And I'm going to begin with some stories that you're pretty familiar with. And just try to root ourselves in, in what we are familiar with um, before we go forward. So this is Genesis 22.2. It comes out of nowhere. God is speaking to Abram. And he says this. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Now he does, he says this, your only son, whom you love. And and I want you to take him and I want you to go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering to one of the mount, uh, on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, this story is weird. There's a lot of these stories in the Old Testament where it just comes out of nowhere. Something like this. I want you to take your only son that you love and go sacrifice him. Now, he has done nothing. That's what's so interesting in this story. There's so many times with David and with other people, they've committed a great sin and God says, okay, this is the consequence. This comes out of nowhere. Go take your son and sacrifice him. And not just that. He's very specific about a location. Did you pick up on that? He's specific about a location. And that's kind of why it's important to a series like this. He says, this is the region I want you to go to. And then I'm going to tell you about a specific mountain. Okay, in this in this region, Mount Moriah. Um, Okay, so just we're going to leave that in the past for right now. but But I want you to just have this image in your mind. Because you know the story of a father that takes his only son to the top of a hill, raises up the sword to kill his only son, and is ready to do it. And then God stops it, and his mercy provides a sacrifice. And he provides a ram, and they call that place, is that where it's Jehovah Jireh, is that right? 
The Lord will provide. The Lord provides at that place. So that's the story from Genesis 22. Okay, now, this is that location today. Um, what do you call this? What is this called in Israel? That's the Dome of the Rock. Anybody, I mean, how long has that been there? I'm not even completely sure. Now, I, that's why I'm nervous. Okay, about 680 years. Um, <laughs> and, and it's been there a long time, built on this same spot, likely the same spot. I want you to picture that way in the past. Have you all seen those books of Fort Collins or other cities? They're really cool. That'll have a picture of what the city looks like today. And on the reverse page, it'll say what that exact picture, like, 70 years ago or 80 years ago. Those are the coolest books ever, especially in Fort Collins, looking at what the city used to look like. This is what it would have looked like way back in the day on that hill. This was a threshing floor. In fact, the old name for Jerusalem, there's 72 different names for Jerusalem in the Bible. Now, most of them are adjectives, but 72 different names for Jerusalem One of them, and one of the oldest names, is Salem. Okay? Salem means peace, right? Now, you remember who the first king of Salem and the first priest in Salem was? Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is going to be the first king and the first priest out of this city, out of this region, to come and bless Abraham. And so that's all part of that story, too. So you have Melchizedek going on. You have Abraham sacrificing his son at this place. The other ancient name for this, um, kind of an aboriginal name, was Jebus. Okay, it was the place of the Jebusites. You know what Jebus means? Threshing floor. Okay, so the word Jebus means the, the place of threshing, where you would thresh wheat. So on top of this mountain, you have this place. This is, this is more of a modern scene, but they would have looked a lot like this, where you threshed wheat. Now, the idea behind threshing wheat is you would just, well, usually they'll have a wooden sled, and they'll go behind, and they'll just crush the grain, and they're separating the chaff from the wheat. Now, that's a really important biblical that comes up a lot in the prophets, this idea of separating the chaff from the wheat. But that's what you would do in this threshing floor, okay? Now I want to bring us to our story, which is one of the strangest stories in the entire Old Testament. It's so weird. This is 2 Samuel 24, and you're going to want to follow along uh, with me because there's a lot of questions that this, this, uh, this text raises. There is a parallel account of this in 1 Chronicles 21, Um, one of the strangest things about these two accounts is there are a lot of discrepancies in these two accounts. Um, Big ones. Um, You know, how much did he pay? Was it 50 shekels of silver or 600 shekels of gold? Things like that. The truth is, when you really get into these two stories, all of those discrepancies here are very easy to explain because of what's going on and what he's addressing. But that's not the nature of this class, so I'm actually going to let those go. Um, what I do want to focus on is the actual story. This is David taking a census of Israel. Okay? Now they're in this spot of land, they're in this area, this territory. And David is at the, this is the close of his life. Uh, he, 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 they have settled in. They just went over his mighty men. They've talked about all of his accomplishments. This is the last thing they record about David's life. Now, before I read this text, Before we got into the story today, if I had asked you, 
what was David's great sin? What would you have told me? Every, all of us, me too, I would say Bathsheba in a heartbeat. That's what we all think. This sin right here, what he does here, the cons- if you're going to measure a sin by consequences, let me tell you, what he does here is bigger than Bathsheba. What happens here is a big deal. Um, and all he does is take a census. All he does is count people. Now let's get into the story. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. This is 2 Samuel 24.1. And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the, entire, and, and, and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll. That's an important word in this, by the way. Enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? Now, you already picked up that at least for them, for Joab, they know this is wrong. Now, I would not have guessed that this is wrong. Uh, But Joab immediately says, what are you doing? We can't do that. God will multiply your troops a hundred times over, but don't ask me to do this. Already guilt starts to stir up because what we're doing is wrong. And that's still, that's weird to me. So let's keep reading. Okay, so um, verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. Seventy thousand of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, The Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. Now this this threshing floor is the place that the temple would later become located. It's the place where the Dome of the Rock, or at least close to the place where the Dome of the Rock sits today, the threshing floor of Aranah. So part of the purpose of the story is to tell us why David chose to build the temple on this location. So that's part of the purpose of the story. But now we need some dialogue. Why would God be so angry over counting your soldiers? Yeah, what do you got? Okay, I love it. The answer is, the first thing that we're thinking is because he's trusting in 
his strength instead of the Lord. This is, this is the same David that came to, came before Goliath, you know, and I'm sorry. Right. And I'm going to, I want to talk about that in a second. That's a great point. The Lord incited him to, it says to do this. Um, and the Chronicles account, it's very similar it, it, to what it says about Pharaoh in different accounts. It says Satan incited him to do it. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But, but what's interesting is this is the same David that stood before Goliath and said, you come against me with sword and shield and javelin and spear and all of this, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This is the same David that in all over the Psalms, he says, man, it doesn't matter what you bring up against me. God is on my side. And now he's counting soldiers, you know? And so that's the first thing that hits us. What else? What, what else is going on here, do you think? You know, you're, you're exactly right. And, and she said, you know, when, when, when this prophet Gad, we don't hear much of the prophet Gad, right? But this prophet Gad confronts him. Did any of you were thinking like, I, man, there's a lot of parallels between what's going on here and, and the Bathsheba story. You, you have the prophet being sent to him. You have the, uh, this is it. I know I'm guilty. This is what's going on. I would say, God, are you serious? I'm just counting people. But we're going to find out that there's more to that going on. And there's way more depth to the story than what I thought was there at first glance. Um, what's so crazy about David's life and why I love David is, is, uh, is somebody who, who I, I, I guess I feel a lot in common with him, not on the good stuff, but in the bad stuff. Um, David, David had this life that was so close to God when... He was in tents and caves and didn't know where he was going to eat and was running for his life and was, was up in the mountains. He has this walk with God, right? Then God grants him success. And next thing you know, he's, man, let me build a palace for you, God. And God says, I live in a tent. And then David says, well, I still want to build you a palace and I want to build me a palace too. God lets him build himself a palace the very next thing that happens when he builds his palace is what? He walks around on the roof of that palace. His life starts falling apart when wealth starts coming in. His life starts falling apart when he gets everything together and he no longer needs God. God is a good thing to have around but I don't need you. The desperation is gone. The, as the deer pants for the water, that song isn't with us anymore, okay? We are in a different place. And so that's something that happens with the Bathsheba story. And I think something very similar is going to happen here. I'm going to keep reading. It says this. Um, uh, let's see, I'm going to pick up in verse, I think, 18. On that day... Gad went, uh, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. 
So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aronah looked and saw the king and his men coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aronah said to David, Let my word Uh, Let my lord, the king, take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for a burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aronach gives all this to the king. Now, he did just give up his livelihood. This is everything he has. Here's my land. Here's the ox I've been using to thresh the wheat. Here's the wood. Use it in offering. I'm giving it all to you, right? Then Then they barter back and forth. It's different in the Chronicles account in here. But it says this. Uh, the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the, bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for him. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now, here's the image I want you to have in your mind before I go to some verses. You, when Abraham came to this mountain with his son Isaac, you have this image of a father standing with sword up, ready to kill his child, and in mercy, he stops his hand, and the child is spared. Now you have this image of an angel of the Lord standing, sword drawn, I've wiped out 70,000 from Dan to Beersheba, and I'm going to take out. And did you know that in Exodus, Israel is called God's firstborn son? He stands with sword drawn, ready to take out Jerusalem. And David runs up here, and he pleads with God. Now, here's the difficulty. Um, why are the people suffering for David's sin? David, at first glance, it appeared David was the one that sinned. And all the people are dying, but David's not dying. But there are two problems with that. One, the, our opening verse said God used David, incited David to turn the hearts, to incite these people to sin. So somehow the people sinned. Now, I want, to check you, I want you to check out this verse. And this kind of opened up my eyes possibly to what's going on here. Um, Don't you love it when people put red on black? Okay, it works on that screen, not on that screen. Um, Then the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he's counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. So I couldn't help but look at this verse and say, there's got to be some connection here. A plague is being poured out on these people because of a census. And it says this, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. Well, why is that? I'm going to give you my best stab at it. And right now, Jeff is guessing, okay? And so I'm going to welcome your feedback on this. I I think he's saying this. An army, David wasn't really supposed to be taking a census anyway. This wasn't his army. This is the Lord's army. The Lord would command a census. But when the Lord did command a census, you would take up a ransom. And what that means is, I have to go home to my wife and say, honey, I'm going to war. 
Well, what does that mean? There's a good chance I'm going to die when I go to war. So what am I going to do? I'm going to leave a pretty large chunk of money. It's a, I can't remember the exact amount of it. It might have been, I can't. But you left money at the temple. And what that money was for was, first off this, my life is not mine to give. It's not my right to give my life unless God commands me because my life belongs to God. I can't just do whatever I want with my life. It belongs to him. And I'm going to offer this ransom. And what that's going to do is first say, I belong to God. And secondly, that would be used to take care of my wife and my family when I can't come home. And so you would pay these ransoms when you went off to war. He's, he's gone out and collected all of these, these fighting men. He's counting his forces. Joab indicates it's about numbers and it's about this because he said, man, God will provide for you what you need. You don't need to count. But there's some connection going on here where the people are taking God's command that their lives belong to him and they're rejecting that. And David has incited them to do this somehow. That's a complicated explanation because I don't know what I'm talking about. But it's something along those lines I'm thinking. Any other ideas? Yeah, exactly. I I liked this verse, and I'm like, there's a connection, and I'm going to make it the best I can. But whatever this ransom was, there's something going on here where the sin is deeper, right? Yeah. Sure. You know, that's, I, I don't want to, I should have used a different version on this. You're exactly right. It's a complicated thing when you're in Exodus and some other things. The truth is, um, the way the, the Hebrew reads on this, and I don't know Hebrew very well, but because of your exact question, which is a very smart question to ask, I did look at the Hebrew. And, okay, yes, <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> right, and so it actually... Excellent. And so it actually does read, the Lord was angry against Israel and a spirit incited David's heart. It doesn't say the Lord's spirit incited him. And so that's why you have the conflict between Chronicles and this going on. The Lord was angry because the spirit inside David was incited against him. Um, God does not reach into our minds and say, you will now sin. There are religions that teach that he does, okay? Um, I teach that he does not do that. Um, but that is, that is a great question. Um, any other questions before we move on with this? Um, yeah, Joshua? You know, this, that's a very Garden of Eden-esque question. Um, it go, kind of goes back to the garden. Um, obviously, we know what takes place here ends up being a beautiful scene of prophecy that's going to relate to what happens in the future of this mountain. Um, and it's kind of like the fall in the garden. You're thinking about everything that happens afterwards. Um, should the fall have happened? And that's where I, I leave that to the philosophers because um, I don't know. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. My, my immediate answer to this, and I'm going to have to look into it, but I, I, again, I don't think it should read, he was angry with them, and so he made all this happen. I think it's saying he's angry with them because all this is happening. I think it begins, I'm angry with them. This is the scene. That's my guess at it, but 
I'm not extremely confident when I say that. Um, so um, this is the temple that's built on the spot. Um, this, is the, this is the future of what you're going to see here is they're going to dedicate this place, this body, this temple, this very location, right? Um, I want to read a... a, a uh, this is where I, I want to make sure I don't stumble over my notes here. Um, I wanted to leave us just with this image of the Lord standing, sword in hand, ready to kill his firstborn. It happens with Moriah, with Abraham, and it happens again at the end of Samuel's life. The idea that my judgment has come to this place. I even suspect that the two pillars that were put next to this temple, um, Joab and Jachin, I think their names were, uh, represented the bronze legs of the Lord, of, of this angel that was standing there, standing before the presence of the Lord. Um, and then you see his mercy poured out. Now I'm going to take us to the New Testament. I need to, I've got, yeah, I've got 15 minutes, so I really need to get into some application here and just talk about what messages I'm gleaning from this, okay? Just before Jesus is about to be crucified is the Passover lamb. And again, we skipped a lot of history of what happened in this temple that also prophesies this. But just before he's about to be crucified in this place, he says to Simon in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, you strengthen your brothers. Until today, I thought that verse was saying, Simon, I'm about to put your life through the ringer. And you're going to get sifted like wheat, and the best part of you is going to come out, but this weak part of you is going to be left as the chaff. And then I found out this Greek word is plural. And he's talking to the disciples that you are going to be sifted like wheat. Then I realized this, in the span of a month, You have Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. The crowds are pushing in. How many people are left in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 that are disciples? 120, 125. That's what's left. They've been dispersed. They've been scattered. The disciples that everybody was crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within a month... Where are they? You have 120 meeting. And it says this when it says, it says that, and this is, this is what it says in Acts 1, and I love this verse now because if, I, I like to think this is what he's saying. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Peter's there. Peter remained. His faith remained. It didn't fail. When everyone was sifted like wheat, his faith remained. This idea of this sifting goes throughout Jesus' ministry in this place that was the threshing floor of Arona. John the Baptist says this in Luke 3. We'll be there this Sunday. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see this God that stands with judgment and grace at the same time. Um, and you see that going throughout Jesus' ministry. Um, and I think about what am I supposed to glean from this? And I love the word glean there. But what am I supposed to get uh, from this message? Um, 
what am I supposed to bring home from it? I want to read some verses out of Corinthians uh, that really brought this message home for me and uh, what we're talking about. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He says in the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Um, In the account of of Arona, I don't know how to pronounce that name, in the account that we we just read about the threshing floor of Arona, these men devoted themselves and signed up for registry and they broke the law by not devoting themselves first to God, but first to men. And a beautiful thing about what God is teaching there is, again, your life is not yours to give. Your life belongs to me. Every aspect of your life belongs to me. Going back to Abraham offering Isaac up, your only son. Your son is who you love. He's a gift from God, but he is entirely mine. Israel is entirely mine. And when he turns this message to Peter, and Peter wants to, wants to save his own life, when Jesus is letting, being led off to be crucified, and Peter cries out, man, I don't know this man. I have nothing to do with this man. I'm not gonna. He's terrified to give his life. And then when Jesus reinstates him and says, man, do you love me? Feed my flock. Take care of my sheep. You see this man through his ministry and acts and in his life that is ready to pour his life out because his life no longer belongs to him. He knows what it is to say, I'm going to give my life because my life never belonged to me in the first place. Um, and so I look at this, this site. It was Salem. It was um, Jerusalem. It was called Ariel. It was called the city of David, Moriah. It was called Oholibah. Um, like I said, I think about 72 different names for this city. And God set this site up over and over and over again from Abraham to David to Christ, the same site with a very similar message, a place that Israel would look at and say, that is where God says, I am holy and I demand holiness. And how about this? You can't pay your ransom. Not one of you were able to pay your ransom. You stood before the Lord guilty and he had to pay the ransom. But the overall message is this, you belong to me. Your, you, your life, your heart, your mind, your strength. Um, that's a convicting message to me. And where I struggle with it is, and we sang a song recently that I just couldn't sing because I, it f- felt weird. I want to be able to sing it. But I, you know the song that says, um, take my life, let it be consecrated, there's, there are verses in that song that say, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use... I mean, it, it's about full sacrifice. And I want to sing a song like that. But I was sitting there thinking, I'm not going to go... Um, who are the two people that offered all this money to God and then lied about how much they gave Ananias and Sapphira? I'm not going to go do that with that song. I, I'm not there. But I'm learning more and more, and I look at stories like this, um, that your life does not belong to you. And I know how much that benefits us, that thought benefits us, when we're going through extreme loss in our life, when we're going through hard times, understanding the gift that it is that God has preserved me 
that he's paid my ransom, that I'm his. That's a message God gives continually through Moriah. Um, any uh, closing thoughts or questions? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? And, and there's some of the passages that used to really embarrass me, and there are still passages that I get really nervous around like that. But have you ever thought about how many passages there are where God stood before his leading man and said, I'm going to kill you now? It happens a number of times. Um, sometimes in very places you don't expect. It definitely happened to Moses where um, out of nowhere God says, well, I'm going to kill you now. Um, really bizarre how often God demonstrates um, his absolute holiness. Um, it's, it's, it's such a sacred theme in Scripture. And I don't think we're able to appreciate this message of love without really appreciating the message of holiness as well. Right? Um, any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, some, there's something very different. You see that you see a theme develop, but then when you come to Christ, um, it shakes that up quite a bit. Everything's a little bit different when it comes to Christ. Christ was the replacement. Christ was the replacement. That's exactly it. Um, we were the ones that were supposed to be sacrificed. Yes, Steve beat me. To it. He didn't beat me to it. He's the only one that figured it out. Actually, exactly. We were the ones that were supposed to be sacrificed, and so yeah, he was the replacement. Um, I just love the depth of of a lot of these messages that we're going to get into. Uh, But they also have very impactful messages. Can you imagine walking around a place? um, I'm here in Colorado. I grew up with Texas history, and I know nothing about Texas history except for the Alamo. Um, I know nothing about Colorado history, but I like to walk around and think, man, I wonder what it was like where the Indians used to live. You know, But can you imagine walking around Israel in a nation that is that old, that old, Did you know that you can't even visit most of the sites you read about in the Bible because they're underneath your feet by, what, 20 feet or 30 feet or something like that? A lot of it's buried underground. The cities are called tells. And a tell is just where a city builds on top of another city, which builds on top of another city, and you've got so much archaeology under your feet. But to walk around and to think... In this small area, that relatively small area that would be Palestine, no matter where you're standing, imagine the history that had happened in that place and around you and in that location. And these people that even lived in the time of Jesus, they had more national history than we do, right, by a lot. And they would walk around and recognize that was the well. That was Jacob's well. That was... This is the place that was the threshing floor of Arona. They would have known those names. They would have known the images that were associated with those names. And those images carried impact, right? And so that's a lot of the point of this class is we're going to kind of look at some of those and try to allow that impact to happen with us. Um, All right. Um, There are no songs.
uh, afterwards tonight. And so you guys are going to be dismissed after a prayer. But uh, thank you all so much for coming out to class. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just want to... Uh, I want to learn to pause before you and recognize you as holy. Um, I feel so incredibly detached from everything we read so often. Uh, not just in, in time or space, God, but um, um, I want to have the heart. Um, I want to have the heart that you call for in Scripture. I, w- I want to be able to be pierced to my heart the way David was. Uh, that's what I love about your man is that as deep as his sin was, that's how, how deep he allowed you to reach. And he, he accepted your grace and he was a man full of grace. And I pray, God, that um, you'd help us recognize this in our lives, that uh, this God, you, Father, that we come and sing to and worship to, you are the high and holy God of Israel and the earth. And um, I don't want to be cheap with the songs that I sing or the sacrifices that I make. Um, I pray, God, that you'd, you'd really instill it in our heart what it means to say that we were bought with a price and that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to you. Um, I pray that that would be instilled in our spirit and that would be reflected in lives that are yours entirely, heart, soul, mind, strength. Um, I love you, God, for um, allowing us to sit at the feet of a very, very ancient teaching. And I pray, God, that somehow it would manifest itself in fruit on the other side of the planet today. I love you, Father. It's in Christ. Amen.